Hello, and welcome to Big Questions from Small Minds, the podcast where we ask professors questions that seem too massive, complicated, or even stupid. We also have lots of intelligent questions. No, they're not ours. They're questions from actual small minds, kids. Phil, what's on today's agenda? Tom, today we're talking aliens. Aliens? <laughs> Do you mean the facehuggers that suck out your brains or the cute little wrinkly ones with glowing fingers? No, we're talking about SETI, also known as the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, with Dr. Danny Price. He's the brilliant astronomer who leads Australia's activities in Breakthrough Listen, a global project which aims to discover alien civilizations. That is huge. It's literally astronomical. <laughs> Only on this podcast, though. <laughs> Dr. Danny also is a senior research fellow at Curtin University's node of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. He builds radio telescopes, searches for life beyond the Earth, and studies enigmatic radio signals, which could be from intelligent ETs. Get seti. We're hunting for aliens. <laughs> How does your brain work? What will the world be like in a hundred years if we don't fix climate change? Why do I have to sleep? Can robots have emotions? Big questions from small minds. Dr. Danny, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. When you were a kid, were you well into telescopes? Were you the kid that gave up going to a party to watch Halley's Comet? Uh, well, when I was a kid, I wasn't going to many parties. I lived up in the hills. Kalamunda was a place in Perth, in Western Australia, and it gets pretty dark at night. And so you don't really need a telescope, uh, at least you didn't back then. It's a lot more light pollution now. But you could just see the Milky Way above your head and just beautiful you know, glowing stars from one end of the sky to the other. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why I got so into astronomy was that I was just spoiled. You know, if I'd grown up in New York or somewhere, I wouldn't have been able to see the stars at all. Wow, that sounds like a beautiful place to grow up. That sounds lovely. I feel like I made myself sound like I don't go to any parties. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a kid, I didn't go to many parties. Yeah. So. We're talking to professors. No one's going, oh, that scientist is really cool because he's a rocker. Except <laughs> 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 <to> Brian May. <laughs> so what is SETI? SETI is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And what it really is, is trying to find artificial signals in astronomical data. So it's really more of a search for techno signatures than it is intelligence. Intelligence is just a shorthand way of saying something that's able to make really advanced technology that we can detect. Okay, I'm going to jump to a kid's question. My question is, how, how, how do we know that aliens are real? We don't know that aliens are real. In fact, we only have one data point on that, and that's here on Earth. And we know that we exist. The big question is, all that SETI is trying to answer is, is there anything else out there? And we don't have an answer for that. The only way we'll ever know is by looking. We know that the conditions for life are out there. There's other stars which are around the same temperature as the sun, and they have planets around there which are rocky. They're called exoplanets because it's around another star system. And we know those planets could have liquid water on their surface. We know there's uh, amino acids out there in space. We've seen them with telescopes. We've seen them on um, meteorites that have landed here on Earth. So we know the building blocks of life are out there, but we don't know whether life is out there. Wow. That's huge. That's amazing. So could you plug headphones into the satellite dish and listen to the sounds that is coming from space? 
Uh, you can do that, but there's a little bit of trickery going on there because it's coming through as a radio wave traveling at the speed of light. And then your sound card is converting it into sounds that you can hear. And the human ear can process about 20,000 hertz of bandwidth, you can say. You know, the highest note we can hear is about 22,000. I'm probably more like 10,000 because I've blown out my hearing. Must have been all those parties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what that means is that if you use one of our telescopes, a larger bandwidth, which you can do with radio, you'd actually need to be listening to about, about 250,000 CDs all at the same time and like trying to find a little, you know, a man playing a violin very quietly. While also ACDC is going on. At the same time. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's difficult. And a headache. <laughs> yeah, we don't want 25,000 ACDC albums playing at the same time. That's going to be a bad day. Even worse. It's 250,000. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to jump to a kid's question. Are aliens green? Do they got long ears? Do they got one eye? Four hands? Do they walk on two legs? These are all very good questions, and the answer is we don't know because we haven't found any aliens yet. But we can say that we can expect some things based on what kind of planet they live on. So if there was an alien living on a planet that had really, really strong gravity, we would expect it to be pretty small and squished. And if the gravity was lower, you could have much larger kind of life forms and more waif-like butterflies. So you can kind of say a few things scientifically about what you'd expect. We think if it's too hot, uh, life couldn't exist because the molecules would just be moving around too quickly and things would just get burnt and go bad. If it was too cold, there's probably just not enough energy for complex life to arise. Depending on what else is on the planet, if there's predators, if they're a predator, all of these things will change what an alien would look like. Uh, but it's a very interesting question. Quite frankly, look forward to seeing these long-eared aliens. Sound very cute. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe they use their long ears to hunt and slap their prey to death. <laughs> That's the thing about aliens is technically you're not wrong. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. Yeah, it could be right until otherwise. <laughs> I was wondering how aliens might communicate to each other. Well, it will depend on where they're living. If they're living somewhere where there's air, then they could shout. Or talk or sing. There's only so many ways that we know of to produce a signal that can be transmitted from yourself to somebody else. You can come up with all manner of different ways and we don't know, it could be maybe chemical, you know, like we have pheromones, you know, dogs have pheromones, you know, maybe they could use that. Light you know, flashing bioluminescence, that kind of thing. There's lots of different ways. The question is, if they can communicate, if they have the means to, will they produce some kind of language or some kind of thing which encodes words and meaning? And that's what scientists normally mean when they're starting to talk about intelligence. So it's possible that you could go to an alien civilization and go to their cinema, but it's a smell cinema. And you have to sit and smell the movie and there's like a whole narrative that goes with the smells. <laughs> I've actually been to cinemas like that, but I think it's just from the patrons, not the actual movie. <laughs> so, Dr. Danny, going back in time, who created SETI and why? SETI began in the 1960s. 
when an astronomer called Frank Drake turned his telescope to the sky and decided to look at some nearby stars to see if there was any evidence of artificial signals that he could find. And he did plug his telescope in and put it in through his headset and listened on his uh, headphones. That was kind of the, the very first SETI experiment. It's called Project Ozma. And since then, there's been quite a lot of different kind of phases. There was a phase on the Allen Telescope Array called Project Phoenix. It was led by Jill Tata. Yep. Jill Tata is famous because, firstly, she's an amazing astronomer. But secondly, uh, there was a book called Contact. Ah, right. And that got turned into a movie that Carl Sagan and Andrew Yan made. Beautiful movie. Uh, one of my, actually, one of my favourites. Now, I want to dive a little deeper into the history. Five. So going back in time. In 1977, NASA launched two spacecraft, the Voyager 1 and 2. Guidance systems online. Their job was to collect data and transmit it back to Earth. Both spaceships have flown past the outer boundary of the heliosphere in interstellar space. Before they launched, Carl Sagan and Anne Duren placed on board both ships a golden phonograph record. And this would be the ultimate vinyl for record collectors. Because it's a message for intelligent aliens, which communicates the story of humans on Earth with a playlist of our best stuff. For example... Dr. Danny, how did Carl Sagan and Anne Duren decide what to put on the record? I believe there was a panel of people at Cornell University where Carl Sagan was a professor and they tried to make it as diverse as possible. There is a lot of classical music on there, but I think there's also some humpback whale songs. I think there's a recording of Anne's mind, like some kind of brainwave thing. And then there's pictures and something in Morse code could take that Morse code and figure out that we have language or that we have the ability to make codes and things. And so there's so much stuff on there. And there was a committee, it wasn't just one person. They've tried to have as much different things on there as they can. What would you put on your playlist to send to aliens? That's a very good question. It's difficult because you're not just speaking for yourself, you're speaking for humanity. So I think I would have to ask around and make sure that wasn't just my own. I'm a big fan of Radiohead, so I probably have one of those on there. Okay. I've been listening to a lot of Wiggles at the moment. I'm not sure I would inflict that on anyone, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they're very popular. <laughs> <laughs> I could definitely see people in like one of the star systems going, I'm not sure about this country, but this big red car has me interested. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Have we ever received signals that could have been from living beings from another planet? There could be a signal in our data set that we haven't found and analysed. We found some signals that we thought could have been after doing analysis, you know, it took us basically a year of looking at this one signal. We found out that it was almost certainly radio interference. In the past, so in 1977, Ohio State Big Ear Telescope, they found a signal that got called WOW. And it got called WOW because it was a signal on a piece of paper that got printed out from the computer and someone had circled it and written WOW. Compared to the technology we have now, pretty low tech. But there's also much less interference at the time. 
and the telescope did find something, but it hasn't been reproducible. And it wasn't strong enough evidence to say this is definitely from outer space. So in space, with all the radio transmissions we make, with television broadcasting, radio broadcasting, does Earth sound like a noisy house party? Like, you know, you're walking down the street and you hear, and you think, that sounds awesome, but I'm glad I don't live there. (laughs) (laughs) For sure, we would sound pretty noisy. Some of the first radio broadcasters around World War II would be Adolf Hitler. We shall fight on the beaches. It's always dictators that get out there first, isn't it? Probably not the best foot forward there. Apparently those aliens aren't into the Nazi stuff, but they love Louis Armstrong. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) In recent history, we've probably been getting a bit quieter because we have satellites beaming things down. It's more energy efficient. So we've probably gotten a bit quieter. But every now and again, there are some scientists, not SETI scientists, but METI scientists, which is messaging for extraterrestrial intelligence. And that's pretty controversial. We don't do any of that. But METI is sending things out on purpose with really big transmitters that are directional and focused. That's a bit controversial because we don't know what's out there. They do sound like your arch nemesis is the METI guys. (laughs) It's cordial, there's debates. It's mainly about whether or not we should expect to be able to detect something if we don't transmit. Most SETI scientists, I think, are pretty anti-messaging. I mean, you know, the late Stephen Hawking, Elon Musk said this is bad. And I think just given our Earth's history of contact with other cultures has been terrible. So we should be careful. We shouldn't expect just because something is intelligent that it's going to be safe or that it's going to be nice. So what you're kind of saying is you don't go into the jungle and say, hey, I'm here, because you get eaten. Yeah, yeah, I I don't disagree with that. I think we, we need to be a bit careful. Here on Earth, predators tend to have higher intelligence, at least what we call intelligence, than prey does. But then humans, we thrive because we are able to cooperate. So if you are way more advanced than us, maybe you can get to that Star Trek level of everybody's nice. They've got replicators down pat and they don't need to worry about working or food or money. They're just like, oh, make me a pina colada. Ching, done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so as long as the aliens have pina coladas, we should be safe. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't the counter-argument that intelligent aliens will reach the same conclusion as we have? that sending messages into outer space is dangerous. And so they will be listening for messages and we'll be listening for messages, but no one will be sending messages. And so how will we know there's an alien civilization out there if no one's sending messages? It's like everyone's sneaking around in the dark. Well, you're, you're right. Most city scientists don't think we should be transmitting, but one of the counter-argument is that we should, because if we're not going to, no one else will. Another counter-argument is that they probably know we're here anyway, because there's other ways you can detect Earth. The way we've detected most of the exoplanets is when a uh, planet goes in front of a star. I'm moving my hands around, and it doesn't really work. So I'm guessing what you're saying is when a planet moves in front of the star, it blocks out the star a little bit. And so you see a little black spot in the telescope or in the radio frequency. Exactly, yeah. So if, if you have the right orientation, the, when the planet goes in front of the star, um, it'll block out some of the light and you'll be able to see this very quite imperceptible dip because stars are big and planets are small. But there is a dip in the intensity of light coming from that star and it'll be periodic based on the the orbital parameters. So you can say, well, these are the stars that would be able to see Earth. What would you say to an alien? 
That's a very good question. I should probably think of something to say. Normally, I'd just start with hello or hey. Hey, informal. You know, if you're on Tinder or something, you just go, hey. Yeah, you just swipe left on Clark from Mars. <laughs> I'm married, so I don't go on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're at work one day and then you get something that says, hello, this is Clark, who is this? Does SETI have a pre-thought-out idea on how to respond to that? Or does everyone just run around with their hands on their head screaming? <laughs> Various protocols have come out as time has gone on, but... Also, since the protocols kind of reform, we also have things like Twitter and Facebook. No. Things can just spread incredibly quickly now. Uh, so we've had a few, uh, not false starts, but where we've found a signal and been like, hey, this is interesting, but we needed to make sure it wasn't radio interference. A few days later, we got a call from The Guardian saying, can you comment on this? And we're like, well, no, we can't comment because we haven't finished the analysis. And then you know, the New York Times and all the other papers are reporting, but there was nothing to report because it was interference. We just hadn't come to that conclusion yet. I think when we find something, we're probably not going to have a, a conclusion that this is definitely a smoking gun. That, I think, very quickly gets out of the astronomer's hands and into the hands of government leaders and the world. It's not our decision to decide what to do there, you know, whether to you know, attempt to communicate back or uh, to start building up our planetary defences. So you, you take your piece of paper and you run to the boss and he's like, this is amazing. And he just calls up the president and they're like, Mr. President, we have confirmation and then that's kind of out of your hands suddenly it's in the politician's hands i unfortunately do not have a line to anthony albanese for anyone we've never been contacted uh, at least i'm not allowed to say that we've been contacted oh, oh, oh you heard it here first they're not allowed to say that yeah. <laughs> well given that earth is really noisy aliens probably aren't even coming here i mean earth only has a rating of one star <laughs> in space what is the Goldilocks zone? So the Goldilocks zone is also known as the habitable zone, and it's a zone where the temperature is not too cold and it's not too hot, but the temperature is just right. Just like a nice bowl of porridge that you're stealing from a bear. <laughs> so it's kind of a bit of a contentious thing what habitable means, because firstly, it has to be life as we know it. You know, completely different circumstances, different life could arise. But also here in the solar system that we live, there's other planets which like Jupiter and uh, Saturn and they have moons that go around them and those moons could actually have liquid water inside the moon even though they're really far away just because gravity from the, the host planet is so strong that it pulls the moon and just if you rub your hands together really quickly, I'm doing that here in the studio, I don't know if you can hear through the microphone, but when you do that you produce heat and it could be a liquid ocean inside. So we may not be alone here in the solar system. Maybe life, you know, in Enceladus or on Titan or something just under the surface. Is it limiting for us to think that life could only be in the same band of existence that we're in? Like, could there be, you know, an intelligence shade of the colour blue that doesn't need heat or liquid water and could be living outside that Goldilocks zone and other solar systems? It's difficult to completely unbias your search from who we are as a species. Yep. You know, we... We think in particular ways and we have a particular understanding of science. We are limited by our understanding of the universe is based on our understanding of ourselves. Going to why we look for around stars and planets, we think you probably need energy and you probably need matter. Just turns out that they're around star systems. One of the hypotheses we're testing is, is there life as we know it out there? Right, right. We know that the conditions for life exist in other places, but does it actually arise? Has it only arised here on Earth once? 
Are aliens as highly developed as us or are they less developed? We haven't detected any aliens yet, so we can't say, but the chances are they're more. Based on we've only been able to use radios for communication for about 100 years and the universe is about 13.7 billion years old. So either we could be some of the first life that's ever arisen or we could just be uh, late to the party. I think it's probably likely that the kind of signals that we could detect with uh, SETI searches would require a more technologically capable society than we are at the moment. Because if I was an alien... And I'm not. Debatable. Well, thank you. <laughs> and I saw all these monkeys amassing weapons of mass destruction. I would stay away too. Is that a reason they could stay away? Because we're killing ourselves. We are, but for them to know that we're killing ourselves, they would have to have some evidence. One of the issues is that it's very difficult to tell what's happening on other planets. Here on Earth, we look, we build telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope, which is amazing. This is a telescope that's out in space, launched very recently, and that will be able to detect if some of these planets and other solar systems have atmospheres, and if those atmospheres have carbon dioxide and methane and nitrogen and all the kinds of good things we have here on Earth. And some of those chemicals are produced by life, and they're not produced by geology or things that would happen on a normal planet. They're called biosignatures as opposed to technosignatures, which is what SETI looks for. So we may be able to detect biosignatures with these kind of telescopes. And you might be able to detect animals. It's still very difficult. We'd be able to tell that the atmosphere has gases that couldn't be there unless there was life, if we're lucky. But it wouldn't tell us that the zebras were blue. It wouldn't tell you anything like, you know, that they're very aggressive. And so it just does that by purely looking at the gas that's being emitted from a planet? Yeah, so the gas, what it does is when light comes in, it'll absorb some of it. And if you were to look through a spectrograph, you would find that there's little holes where particular molecules stop light of that particular colour from getting in or out. And then there's some molecules that will emit at a particular colour as well. Wow, that is so interesting. If aliens are alive, could they live on planets like Uranus and Neptune? Because those planets are made out of gas. That is a good question. Could they live on Uranus or Uranus, depending how you like to say it? Depends if you like to giggle. <laughs> I'll go the way I think you want it said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Uranus, uh, it's got lots of gas there, water, ammonia and methane. So it would smell a little bit like farts. Excellent. Yeah, that's, that's our type of planet. <laughs> that's the problem with small minds, people. <laughs> The amount of energy there is pretty low, so it'd be quite cold and it might be an ice or an ice that's a little bit like a weird fluid. It's probably difficult for life to arise there, but it's not because it's gas. Up in the clouds, you know, microbes can survive in the clouds. Um, there was a theory that Carl Sagan had that life could exist in the cloud decks of Venus. Venus itself is a very horrible place. It's got acid that rains down from the sky and it's very hot. But up in the clouds above the acid, life could exist there. They detected a chemical called phosphine in the cloud decks of Venus. And phosphine is another really smelly gas. It's made mainly by like slime here on Earth. There's no natural process that doesn't involve life to produce phosphine. So it's possible Venus has cloud whales? Uh, cloud whales probably less likely because gravity oh, would pull them down yeah. and then they'd get melted. But you don't have any actual proof 
the cloud whales of Venus don't exist. He's trying to say cloud farts. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> You're a cloud fart. <laughs> uh, with Uranus, is it mm-hmm. gas the whole way through? Like, could you just fly your spaceship straight through it? You probably wouldn't be able to just fly through it. I mean, it's high pressure, right. but it would still be counted as a gas. Neptune, I think, may have a mantle, and it would be a little bit like an ocean made out of carbon with, like, diamonds floating on it. Oh, is that the place where it rains diamonds? I think that's Neptune, not Uranus. Ah, there's no diamonds in Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were doing really well not laughing at Uranus that whole time. <laughs> well, you know what they say about Uranus. <laughs> yes, what do they say? They say it's a terrible place to party because it's got a terrible atmosphere. <laughs> Is there a time difference on their planet? Like, could an alien who's my height only be three years old? I think the question is about time dilation and the crazy stuff that happens when you have really strong gravity or if you're moving very fast. So it is possible if the gravity on a planet was very strong, uh, then you could have some weird time dilation effects. But for the person or the, the being on that planet, they would perceive time to be passing normally, probably. If they were able to live there, I should say, it's a very, very difficult place to live if you have those kind of weird conditions going on. When the aliens come to the Earth, will they rule the world? Will we all be slaves? Ah! Well, it's uh, terrifying to think and we don't know the answer. But what I will say is that SETI is not trying to make contact. We're just trying to see what's out there. We're just using our technology to see if we can detect other technology. Yeah, they're not, they're not the crazy bastards from METI. <laughs> <laughs> what is the benefit if we do discover there is an alien civilization that has the capacity for communication, but we're not going to contact them? What is the benefits in doing that? Well, I think it would be the most profound discovery ever made. Knowing that we were not alone in the universe certainly tells us something. If we find one as well, that probably means that there's lots more that there's this entire wide universe of things out there. The flip side of the coin is we don't find anything. We actually conclude we are the only life in the universe and here on Earth is the only place where life exists. And I think that's an important thing to think about because, you know, we don't necessarily treat the planet the way we should all the time. We don't necessarily realise how amazing we are as a society and as human beings and plants and animals. This is really the only place where it's ever happened. I think that's pretty profound. It's something that we should cherish. That is huge. It's magical and beautiful and existential in whichever way you look at it. Yeah, there's fear in both directions. Or wonder and inspiration. I mean, that's what I meant. Wonder and inspiration and fear. (laughs) (laughs) Danny, thank you for sharing your knowledge and telling us how you search for aliens. No worries. Thanks for having me. Everything you've told us has been extremely fascinating. I think it's important for a scientist to get out and actually talk to people as well and spread the word. Links to everything we talked about can be found at www.smallminds.au. Keep curious, people, and keep asking the big questions. Until next time, watch the skies. Big questions from Small Minds.